just so impressed me and so encouraged me about this church was the heart of this church to hear the word of God, to receive the word of God, and then to put it into practice. And that has never changed over the six, seven years that I've been here. This has always been a hallmark, a great encouragement to me and to so many is just your heart to hear the word of God. And so this morning, let's open the word of God, shall we? And hear God's word to our hearts. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. And I want to bring to you a message this morning entitled, All Sufficient Grace. All Sufficient Grace. One of the most beautiful statements in all the Bible, which is found in this text, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10, and let's read that together. Paul writes this, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As we consider the passage that is before us, let me begin by asking you a question. Have you ever made a request to God in prayer and received a no answer to your prayer? Have you ever come to the Lord and made a request, a petition, and had God say no to your request? Now you and I know that we are called to pray to the Lord. Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. Hebrews 4.16 calls us to come to the throne of grace with boldness and with confidence and we will receive mercy and grace in our time of need. We are called to pray and we know that, that oftentimes God opens the heavens and the floodgates of blessings and he lavishes upon us answers to our prayers which are specific, which are directly in, in relation to what we have asked for. And we know that oftentimes God even exceeds our requests and he exceeds our petition and he gives us things that we haven't even asked for. Some of the times I have felt like the old saint of old who prayed this prayer, Lord, stop. I mean, actually pray that prayer, stop blessing me. I mean, you're just opening the floodgates of blessing and I'm drowning in your blessings. Lord, it's almost too much. And I've been there. Where I've prayed to the Lord and the Lord has answered my prayers. And I've prayed to the Lord and the Lord has answered exceedingly abundantly beyond my prayers. And I'm almost saying, Lord, this, this is too much. I mean, you're just too good. I've asked for one ice cream cone. You've given me 20. But we also know that sometimes God in his infinite wisdom and love says no to our prayers. Sometimes God says yes. Sometimes God says wait. And sometimes God says no. Because in his fatherly love for us, he sees that that is what is good for us. This reminds me of some prayers which some children have made which most likely have received a no answer. Prayers like Debbie, age seven, who said, Dear God, please send a new baby for mommy. The new baby you sent last week cries too much. Or Jimmy, age six, who said, Dear God, who did you make smarter, boys or girls? 
My sister and I really want to know. Norma, age eight, said, Dear God, how many angels are there in heaven? I would like to be the first kid in my class to know the answer. Or David, age seven, who said, Dear God, I need a raise in my allowance. Could you please have one of your angels tell my father? Thank you. And here's my favorite, Angela, age eight, who said, Dear God, this is my prayer. Could you please give my brother some brains? So far, he doesn't have any. Now, those are real-life prayers. And real-life children who have asked specific requests, and most likely they received a no answer to those prayers. I mean, who knows? Maybe God said yes. I don't know. But the point is that God does not always answer yes to our prayers. Sometimes, in his wisdom, he gives the answer no. No. And I think, dear beloved church, that this is where you and I can really struggle in our faith. I think this is where the rubber meets the road. I think this is really where we can have a hard time as Christians is when God does not immediately answer yes to our prayers, and especially when they are prayers in relation to trials and suffering. I think where we as Christians can really struggle in our faith where our hearts can grow weary and grow discouraged is when we are in the midst of a prolonged time of trial and God does not seem to be answering our prayers. That's where the rubber really meets the road. One of my great spiritual heroes is Johnny Erickson Tata. I have been mentored and discipled by her books, by her teachings. She is a beloved woman of God. She has lived a shining testimony of joy and faith in Jesus Christ. And many of you know her story. At age 17, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay, and she suffered a tragic diving accident, which left her a quadriplegic. Paralyzed from the neck down, she despaired of life. She wanted to die. And instead of of dying or committing suicide, she went on to live a life of worship and of faith in Jesus Christ. She started a ministry, Johnny and Friends Ministry, which has ministered to thousands of disabled people all around the world. And her life has been a shining beacon of faith in Christ. And a few weeks ago, I was uh, excited to pick up her latest book from Barnes and Noble. And her latest book was entitled Johnny and Ken, An Untold Love Story. And Ken is her husband of over 30 years. And in that book, I was shocked to read of a very severe trial that began in Johnny's life later on in their marriage, as she was in her 50s or 60s. As if a life of quadriplegia wasn't enough difficulty to deal with, Johnny suddenly began to deal with the severe trial of chronic pain. And she writes in her book that the pain that she was experiencing wasn't, quote, just a nagging pain, the kind that you could grin and bear. It wasn't the kind you could take away with an aspirin. She describes it as a jagged, twisted, rager-edged agony. It was, without exaggeration, the stuff of nightmares. She, she says, the pain was like an ice pick that was located between my shoulder blades, and this chronic pain went on and on without relief. Her husband, Ken, of course, exhausted all options to diagnose and treat this painful condition, but after months of searching, after all the treatments proved to be ineffective, at the end of it, they were left without options. And this is where I think the real battle lay for Johnny and for Ken. It wasn't just a physical trial. It was a spiritual trial in nature. You see, Johnny was a woman who walked with the Lord. She was a woman who loved the Lord. She had devoted her life to honoring the Lord. And here she is in the most severe trial of her life. And she is praying for relief and there is no answer. She's asking the Lord, remove my trial, make my life better, take this away, change this situation if you love me and you are my father and I'm your child. Then Lord, would you answer 
my prayer. And yet in her book, she writes of how in this trial, the heavens appeared to be silent. And her most favorite doctrine, which was the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, God's sovereign hand and control over all things, which had brought her such comfort over so many years, now seemed to her to be a dark and even a scary doctrine. And she said, Lord, is it really your will that you leave me in a trial like this? Dear brothers and sisters, have you ever been there in your Christian experience? Let's just get real nitty-gritty. Let's just get down to earth. Have you ever been in a situation where you have asked of the Lord, where you said, Lord, you are my father. Lord, I am your child. Lord, if you love me, won't you change this in my life? And the heavens have appeared to be silent. If you've been there, you can join in with a long list of saints who have wondered, quite honestly, why God is not answering their prayers. Psalm 6, verse 3, the psalmist said, How long, O Lord? How long? My soul is greatly troubled. Turn, O Lord, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. How long until you answer my prayer, Psalm 13, verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 35, verse 17, How long, O Lord, will you look on, rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the loins? There have been saints who have lived throughout all the ages who have wondered, Why, O Lord, are you not answering my prayers? How long will I cry out to you? How long will the heavens appear to be silent? And especially when we are in a season of suffering, we can wonder why is God not answering our prayers? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10, we are going to meet a man who is in a severe, painful trial. We are going to meet a man who is undergoing a tremendous season of painful suffering. We are going to meet a man who is crying out to the heavens and who is asking the Lord to change his life, to take away his trial, to remove the situation. And we are going to meet a man who is not receiving a yes answer to his prayers. And this man is none other than the apostle Paul. Paul writes in verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn, a, a painful trial was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, literally to beat on me, to pound me with blows. This messenger of Satan was pounding me and driving a stake through my flesh. And he says in verse 8, three times I pleaded, I begged, I implored with the Lord about this that it should leave me. Lord, take away the thorn. Make this messenger stop. Put a hedge around my life so that he can no longer pound on my flesh. I pleaded with God. God, would you change this in my life? And God says to Paul in verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that, as I said, is a beautiful verse. That, as I said, is a lovely verse. That is a verse which is one of the most precious diamonds in all the Bible. God's all-sufficient grace in our lives. But before we get lost in the beauty of that verse, let's just note for a moment that it is a very, very nice way of God telling Paul, no. No, Paul. I'm not going to remove the thorn from your flesh. No, Paul, 
I'm not going to take this trial away. No, Paul, I'm not going to make your life better. I'm not going to answer the prayers that you are praying. But what I'm going to give you is something better. I'm going to give you my all-sufficient grace. And you are going to find through this experience that my grace is sufficient, that my grace is abundant, that my grace for you is more than enough even if your circumstances never change. That's what God tells Paul in this text. My grace is sufficient for you. And here, dear brothers and sisters, we come to really what is the main point that I want to communicate with you this morning. The main lesson, I believe, that is found in this text is that the reason why God appears to leave our prayers unanswered and the reason why God says no to certain prayers is because in his infinite love for us as his children, he intends to give us something even better. Now I know my children, and when they ask for ice cream, they say, Dad, can you take us to Baskin Robbins and give us an ice cream? And I say, no, children, you know what? I have something better for you than ice cream. And their response to me is, Dad, nothing's better than ice cream. The best thing in life I can think of right now is ice cream. I can't, and I'm like, well, you know, I've got better things for you. I've got plans for a college education, and I've got plans for you, uh, you know, taking the SATs, and I got all these, and, and they're looking at the ice cream. I don't care about SATs. I don't care about what, what's going to happen 10 years from now. I just want the ice cream. And, and many times we, as, as God's children, we're, we're looking at this prayer. We're looking at the situation in our lives. We're saying, Lord, change it, change it. Won't you change it? We're like, Paul, take the thorn away. Make this better. And God says, no, I have something better for you. And we're like, nothing's better than this. How can anything be better than you changing this? God says, trust me, my grace, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace will take you through this. And I have better things in mind. I know some of you may be in that situation this morning where you're saying to me, Dan, you know, that's just a real trite statement. I mean, I get it. It's, it's one of these platitudes we kind of throw around that, yeah, God has something better. God has something better. But, but Dan, I, I really want this to change in my life. And, and it's just not connecting with me. What could be better than the Lord answering this prayer of mine? Especially when it relates to when we're in trial. And that is why I think it's necessary for us to go deeper into this text. And what I want us to see in verses 7 to 10 are the three specific blessings that God gave to Paul that were even better blessings than if God had answered Paul's prayer. These, were, these are specific. This isn't a platitude. This isn't a nice statement. This isn't me standing up saying, oh, God's going to make everything better. He's, he's uh, going to give us better things than what we've asked for. And you guys walk away and go home and say, yeah, yeah, Dan says some nice things today. But it doesn't really connect with my life. It doesn't really connect with what I'm really hurting with this morning. No, I want to show you from this text that there were three very specific blessings that God poured into Paul's life, which were even better blessings than if he had answered Paul's prayers. That if God had said, you know, Paul, I'm going to answer your prayers. I'm going to take the thorn away. I'm going to move this messenger out of your life. You're going to get better. You're going to have a pain-free life then Paul would not have received these three blessings that God is going to give to him. But because God said no to his prayers, the, the floodgates were opened up for God to really bless Paul with blessings even greater than answered to his prayers. So let's go through these three blessings together and let me convince you from the text that when God appears to say no to our prayers, he does so because he has something better in mind. The first blessing that God gave to Paul in this text, which was an even better blessing than answer to his prayer, was the gift of genuine humility. The gift of genuine humility. This is what 
Paul talks about in verse 7. He says, note very carefully, so to keep me from becoming conceited, so to keep me from being puffed up with pride, so to keep me from exalting myself, so to keep me from this horrible sin, this horrible sin of pride, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And then he adds again, as if we didn't, we didn't get the point, to keep me from becoming conceited. Look, I want to emphasize to you that the trial that God had allowed in my life had a definite purpose in my life. And the purpose was that I needed to be humbled. I needed to be rescued from the one sin that God knew would completely destroy my life. And that sin was with the sin of arrogant pride. There was a temptation in my life, Paul says, that I was about to exalt myself. And why was Paul about to exalt himself? Because of verse 7. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. You go back to verse 2, and Paul talks about this. He talks about, I know a man who was caught up into the third heaven, who heard inexpressible words, who was caught up into paradise. And he's talking really modestly here because we all know that that man is Paul. Who was this man? It was Paul. Paul was allowed to go into heaven. He was allowed to see things that no man here on earth has ever seen. He was allowed to be in paradise itself because God wanted to strengthen him for the terrible sufferings that he would endure. And so he had been given this tremendous spiritual privilege. And brothers and sisters, you know, what happens to you, to your heart, when you are given a tremendous spiritual privilege? When you are given the privilege of sitting under learning such great Bible doctrine, or you are given the privilege of being used by God to impact another person's life, or you are given the privilege of leading someone to Christ, or you are given the privilege of being used by God in ministry, what happens to you and I, to our hearts, when we are given privilege? If your heart is like mine, you know that what's tempting to your heart is to start strutting around like your hot stuff. I must be someone real special because God has given to me this privilege. And dear brothers and sisters, may I say to us, may I just pause at this moment and say to us that if there's one thing that characterizes Cornerstone Bible Church over the last 13 years, it is the tremendous spiritual privileges that we have received from the Lord. Privilege. That's all I could think about. As I reminisced upon my time here at Cornerstone, six, seven years that I've been here, as I looked at the pictures, that I thought about all that God had done. Privilege. What a privilege, the privilege of worship, the privilege of prayer, the privilege of fellowship, of ministry, the privilege of orphan care, the privilege of being used by God in missions, the privilege upon privilege of being taught the word of God. How many privileges have we received from the Lord as a church? And there's the temptation, isn't there? With great spiritual privilege, there is great temptation to pride. And there's a great temptation for us as a church to start walking around strutting like we are something special. Like we are such a great church because God has given to us so many privileges. And that was the temptation in Paul's life. God knew that. God knew that because Paul had been given such great spiritual privileges that Paul had a great temptation to pride. And he knew that pride, if left unchecked in Paul's life, would destroy him. It would destroy his ministry. It would destroy his reputation. It would destroy his example. It would destroy the memories of men who had stood under his teaching. It would destroy any affection they would have for him. If Paul would allowed to be fallen into pride, it would have destroyed him. He would have fulfilled the words of the Proverbs which says, pride goes before destruction. And God's word says, and you know this well, that God is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. God knew that Paul was tempted to pride and that God wanted to rescue Paul from this terrible sin. And so in order to keep Paul humble, in order, Paul says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. Now, I don't like that translation thorn. It's kind of like a you think of a thorn, you think of a little thorn on a rose bush, and you kind of think of, oh, it pricks a little bit, and a little bit stingy, and kind of irritating, but I can move on, right? 
The literal Greek word is not just a little thorn. It describes a torturous stake being driven through someone's body. That's the metaphor. A torturous stake being driven through my body, Paul says, in order to keep me humble. Now remember who we're dealing with here, dear brothers and sisters. Remember who we're dealing with here. Was this a high-maintenance Christian? Was Paul one of these wimpy dudes who just, you know, goes home crying every time he has a little sniffles and goes whining to other people? Oh, I don't feel well today. I mean, who are we dealing with here? This is a tough guy, right? I mean, the guy was beaten 39 times and repeated that experience five times after that. I mean, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was left for dead, he spent night and day laboring for the cause of the gospel. This was a strong man. He had a high pain tolerance. He could rival any football star that's, that's on the field. Uh, he, he was a tough guy. And so if this torturous stake that had been driven through his body was driving him to his knees, crying out for God to remove the thorn. Oh, brothers and sisters, this was a painful trial indeed. This was a terrible trial. If Paul was, was praying, God, take this away. He didn't pray that about being stoned. He didn't pray that about 39 lashes. He didn't pray that about hunger or thirst. But here he is and he's saying, Lord, this is just this is too much. I can't handle this. It's too painful. Take it away three times. I'm begging you, Lord. Oh, this thorn must have been a tremendous trial. It must have been tremendously painful to his heart. And a lot of people have speculated, what is the thorn? And some people have said, well, the thorn was a a physical trial. It was something like an eye disease or or there's letters where Paul is writing large with hands. So it must have been that Paul was losing his eyesight and he couldn't see. Or it must have been some kind of disfiguring disease that he was ashamed to stand in front of people because he was disfigured. Or it must have been some painful physical ailment. And I think there's a lot of, tr- may be a lot of weight to argument in that, in that this, this might have been something just tremendously physically painful because he describes it as a thorn being driven through my flesh. Others say that, no, this wasn't a physical affliction. It was an emotional affliction. I mean, Paul was a tough guy. He wouldn't have complained about physical ailments, but but. Some have said that this was the pain of seeing the church ripped apart by false teachers and seeing the pain of the church struggling and having problems was so afflicting to his heart. He was like, man, beat me 39 times, stone me, leave me for dead, but don't take my church. That's just too painful. He loved the church so dearly that to see the church being ripped apart with problems was was just too much for him. And so we pray three times, Lord, take that thorn away. You know, I, I'll just be real honest with you. I don't know what the thorn was. I don't know if it was physical in nature. I don't know if it was emotional in nature. And you know what? I believe that the text leaves this inconclusive because the point is, isn't to specify whether it was a painful physical trial or a painful emotional trial. The point in this text is that Paul was hurting. The point in this text is that Paul had great pain. And whether you say it was physical pain or whether you say it was emotional pain, the point is that he was hurting so much that he was asking God, Lord, would you remove this pain from my life? Oh, dear brothers and sisters, I'm not a prophet and I'm not here to talk about all the ins and outs of how this applies to our life but I think I would be remiss as a shepherd and a pastor not to acknowledge the fact that in this church over the last year or so that there has been pain that there has been pain and I know that all of us are in varying degrees of recovery from that some of you have healed praise God some of you are like, I'm good to go, Dan. I'm, you know, it was painful and I'm, I'm tough and God's grace is sufficient. And I'm leaving what lies behind and moving forward to what lies ahead. I'm good. I'm moving forward. Praise God. I just praise God for the work that he's done in your heart. Others of you, you're, you're not there. You're in varying degrees of healing. Others of you, are, it's still painful. But there has been pain. 
And if there has been pain in our lives, if there has been pain in our church, that all the more we need to listen to what God is saying in this text. Because what God is saying in this text is that there is a purpose and a reason for that pain. It's not random. It's not here by mistake. There are definite things that God is teaching us through that pain in order to make us to be more like Christ. On sabbatical, I stood in a pastor's office. I I received some counseling during my uh, sabbatical and pastors need pastors, you know? Shepherds need shepherds. And I stood with an older pastor and I I said to him, you know, uh, he said, well, how's ministry been? I said, well, you know, the last year has been really painful. But hey, you know what? I'm, I'm good to go. I'm moving on. I'm leaving what lies behind. I'm pressing forward what lies ahead. I'm not thinking about the past. I'm just going to move to the future. And he said, Dan, you know, that's great and that's wise and, and I'm really thankful for that. But before you do that, God is teaching you something through that pain. And I don't want you to be in such a hurry to move forward that you miss out on what God is teaching you right here and right now. I thought it was really wise because there were things that God was teaching me through that pain. And there were things that God was teaching Paul through that pain. And there are things that God is teaching you, Cornerstone Bible Church, through the pain. Paul says, I had a thorn that was in my flesh. It had been given to me to keep me from becoming conceited. And then would you notice that he says what this thorn was. He says that it was a messenger of Satan to harass me. Now look, I get freaked out by demons. I don't know about you. You know, I know that we wrestle with the demonic realm. I know that Satan is real. I know that demons are real. I know that our battle is spiritual warfare. We, we fight against demons. Demons are all around us. Their activity is all around us. But if, if a demon showed himself in my room visually, I can tell you something. I would be freaked out. I'd be calling all you guys, ah, you know, you know there's a demon in my room. I, this, is a, this is something I do not want to experience. Paul says here, you know what this thorn was? It wasn't just a garden variety suffering. It wasn't just random things happening in my life. It was a messenger, and literally an angelos in the Greek, an angelos of Satan to harass me, most likely a demon who had come to pound me with blows. This is a literal translation. This word harass was the same word they used in the gospel records when it talked about the, peop- the men beating on Jesus with their fists. Paul says there was a demon who was beating on me with a fist, driving this painful stake through my life. And here's the hard part. God had allowed this to happen. You say, what? God allows demons to operate in our lives? God allows demons to cause us suffering? Think back to Job, right? Patriarch Job. God gave Satan freedom to pound on Job, to cause him great pain. Why? Because God had a purpose in that. God wanted to show to the world and to thousands of years of redemptive history, to all the believers who would ever come after Job, that Job's faith was real, that Job's faith was as gold, that Job's faith was genuine, that Job didn't just believe God because God had given him good things. And so in order to accomplish that purpose, God allowed Satan to pound on Job. Jesus said to Peter in the gospel records, Luke twenty two thirty one, 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And it's been said. Peter's natural response would have been, Lord, you told him no, right? Satan has demanded to have you, Peter. Lord, you said no. And Jesus says, no. I said, yes. Satan's going to sift you like wheat. And I'm going to allow him to have activity in your life. Why? Because in the end, Peter, that is going to be tremendous preparation for you to become the leading apostle of the church. I think that this is one of the great paradoxes that is found throughout all the Bible. 
that one of the reasons that God allows Satan to have certain limited freedoms in our lives is because that in the infinite wisdom and plan of God, God accomplishes good through Satan's evil. Let me say that again. One of the reasons why God allows Satan to have limited freedoms in our lives because in the infinite wisdom of his plan, God wants to accomplish his good through Satan's evil. You might be saying, well, can't he accomplish his good apart from Satan's evil? Yes, he could. But if he did that, he wouldn't show the world and show the angels how awesome and how wise and how infinitely intelligent he is. That's the whole point of this plan is that through Satan's evil, God wants to accomplish his good so that everyone stands back and goes, God, you're amazing. You didn't just accomplish good in our lives. You accomplished good through Satan's evil. I think this is why Satan is the most frustrated individual in the world today. Because every time he does something evil, God does something good out of it. I mean, it must be so frustrating. Can you think of a life like that? Every time you score a basket on the basketball court, you realize, oh man, I just scored for the other team. Imagine living a life like that for thousands of years. God just keeps doing good. Every time he does something evil, God does something good. He does something evil, God does something good. And the greatest time he thought, I have him. I've finally done the greatest evil. I've nailed the son of God to the cross. And chortling with laughter over his victory, he stands back and sees that all he has accomplished is the salvation that has been preordained before the foundation of the world. In the moment of what he thought was Jesus' greatest defeat, God has accomplished his greatest victory. I mean, how frustrating must that be? Live a life like that. Doesn't stop him from trying, right? He keeps trying to do evil. He keeps trying to afflict God's people. So here he is. I got Paul. I got him. I got my messenger on him. He's pounding Paul. I'm accomplishing my evil. I'm going to harass Paul. I'm going to beat him till he's black and blue. And Paul stands back and says, you know what? All that Satan did throughout all that activity is he accomplished God's purpose of keeping me humble. He rescued me from my greatest enemy. And my greatest enemy is not my pain. My greatest enemy is my pride. Dear brothers and sisters, it's been well said that in the Christian life, humility is our greatest friend and pride is our greatest enemy. I think that's so true. If the scriptures are right and God opposes the proud, if the scriptures are true and pride leads to destruction, and if the scriptures are true, that great spiritual privileges are an occasion for great pride, then dear brothers and sisters, you and I need painful trials in our life so that we can be kept from exalting ourselves. I think back on the, I think it's, I've been a Christian for about 21 years. I, became a Christian in 1992 and there's been seasons of blessing and there's been seasons of pain and I think back to what if God had not allowed those seasons of pain in my life and all I could think about dear brothers and sisters is if God had not allowed those seasons of pain in my life how prideful how obnoxiously prideful I would be. How unfeeling, unsympathetic, uncaring. What an obnoxious Christian I would be. You see, the times when I thought God was killing me were the times where God was rescuing me. And the times... Here's Paul, and he's saying, God, aren't you killing me? And God says, no, I'm rescuing you. 
Let's mark it down. The greatest enemy in our lives is not our pain. The greatest enemy in our lives is our pride. And I just want to talk to you as a shepherd for a moment, as a friend, as a pastor. And again, state that I am no prophet. I'm no interpreter of events. There are things that happen in our lives that we're just not going to know why God allowed it until we get to heaven. And even then, God may not explain it to us. We may be like 10,000 years from now in heaven. Why did God allow that? I don't know. He doesn't need to tell us. He doesn't owe us an explanation. And I'm not here to interpret any, all the events. I'm not here to say why God allows what he does. But I do know this, that if because of the season that we have walked through as a church, if because of the pain that we have experienced as Christians, if we are more humble as a result of walking through this time, then dear brothers and sisters, God would have blessed us far greater even if he had answered all our prayers. And my prayers were, you know, Lord, my dream is to grow old at Cornerstone. I mean, that was my prayer. I went to, uh, I think it was Will and Deborah's wedding, and they had these sweet wedding coordinators. They're the sweetest women in the world. And they were telling me, you know, Dan, uh, you know, those, those are my, these are our grandkids. On the, see, our grandkids are playing out on the, on the youth field. And I was like, oh, you know, I would love to be there like, like uh, 30 years from now, be at Cornerstone, be sitting out there on the patio and looking at our little grandkids and, and my grandkids are playing with your grandkids and we're all like, you know, old together and like, oh, you know, it's just heartwarming sight. And, you know, I mean, that was my dream. Sometimes God does not answer our prayers because he wants to give us something even better. And the gift he wants to give us is humility. Humility. I can honestly, honestly praise and exalt God for the last two years that I've been at Cornerstone. Because what I have seen in this church is that we used to go out and boast of our strengths. And now we go out and we boast of our weaknesses. And if God would have accomplished that in our hearts, it is a greater blessing, dear brothers and sisters. And if Cornerstone had grown to a thousand people and planted ten churches and been renowned and in the Christian community and everyone came to us and said, oh, you should have conferences because you know how to do ministry and tell us how to do it. Oh, brothers and sisters, far better to be humble. Far better to be humble. And my parting exhortation, my plea to you is to be humble. Dear brothers and sisters, be humble. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God so that at the right time he may exalt you. Humble yourselves. Do not allow your hearts to be captured by the sin of pride no matter how many spiritual privileges God grants to you. Humble yourself. Pride leads to destruction. God opposes the proud. Be humble. And God will exalt you at the proper time. Let me move to a second blessing God gave to Paul in this, in this situation. He gave to Paul first the, the gift of genuine humility. And the second blessing God gave Paul was a gift of power in ministry. Power in ministry. Paul says in verse 7, he says, There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, and three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But verse 9, he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you for. I note it very carefully. Here's the whole point. My power is made perfect in weakness. In weakness. 
Now, some have said that that one statement in verse 9 is not only the climax of this tremendous passage, but is the climax of the entire epistle of 2 Corinthians. What has Paul been talking about in the book of 2 Corinthians? He's been talking over and over again about how God's power was shown through my weakness. God's power was shown through my weakness. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, it was not my strengths that God blessed in order to move the church. It was my weaknesses that God used in order to advance the gospel. Power in weakness is the recurring motif that runs throughout the entire epistle of the book of 2 Corinthians. uh, Chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, in jars of clay, in ordinary containers, to show that the surpassing power of the gospel belongs to God and not to us. You know, you look at me, I'm just a clay pot. I'm nothing special. I'm, I'm so ordinary, but that's to show you that God's power is perfected in weakness. Chapter 4, verse 8, we are afflicted in every way. We are perplexed. We are persecuted, struck down, always caring about in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Chapter 6, verse 4, as servant of God, we commend ourselves by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true. Verse 9, we are unknown. We are dying and behold we live. Punished and yet not killed. Sorrowful and yet not always rejoicing. Poor yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing everything. In chapter 11, verse 24, Paul describes his ministry in this way. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews. Forty lashes less one. Three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. In frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You say, this is the man whom God used to turn the world upside down? Look at him. What does he have to show for himself? He's hungry. He's thirsty. He hasn't slept in days. People are beating him. He's got scars on his body. He's got the emotional pain of caring for the church. He doesn't, he says he's perplexed. I don't know what to do. What do I do? I'm, I'm perplexed. How do I move on with life? He's struck down. And he says in the end, all I am, in the end, is a jar of clay. I'm like this paper plate that you put your pizza on and it gets greasy with stains and you don't go to the, your sink and wash that plate. You throw it away. I'm just a disposable guy. But you know what? This is all to show you that true power in Christian ministry does not come through our strengths. It comes through our weaknesses. Say, Dan, why do you love that so much? Why is that so exciting to you? Why is that something that you're passionate about? I mean, something is is, is paradoxically, it's kind of hard to be passionate about, right? God's power is going to be shown through us the more we become aware of our weaknesses. I mean, who loves that doctrine? I mean, most, I mean the, it's completely opposite of what the world tells you. The world says you will change the world through your education, through your advanced degrees, through your intelligence, through your capability, through your superior discipline, through how smart you are, the way you have everything figured out. And, and Paul says, I was perplexed, beaten down, hungry, thirsty, didn't know what to do, just crying out to God. I was just this clay pot. That's why God used me. Say, Dan, why, are you, why do you love that? This is why I love that so much. You see the motif that's playing throughout the book of 2 Corinthians? Power and weakness. Power and weakness. Power and weakness. And then he says it explicitly, like the capstone, the climax in, verse, in chapter 12. God's power is perfected. It's made perfect in my weakness. The reason 
why Paul emphasizes that theme so much because, dear brothers and sisters, that theme encapsulates the heart of the gospel. Power in weakness is the theme of the gospel. And the reason why Paul says over and over it is power in weakness is because he is simply echoing the theme that was in the life of Jesus when he came down to earth and died for our sins. How did Jesus accomplish the power of salvation to redeem guilty sinners from their sin? Was it through his strength? of showing everyone in the world what a great Messiah he was and how he was worthy of all power and all honor and all homage? Or was it not through his weakness and being born as a little babe in the little town of Bethlehem and being laid in a manger and growing up in a nondescript tiny little town called Nazareth? where nothing good ever was thought to come from. And starting his public ministry with 12 no-name fishermen disciples who had no advanced credentials, no degrees, one of whom would be a traitor, and spending the entire thrust of his three-year ministry with the outcasts and the poor, healing the sick, raising the dead, ministering to lepers and demoniacs and epileptics and all those whom the world would not even dare touch. And then in the supreme act of his power being manifested, allowing his hands and his feet to be nailed to a cross, standing in between two criminals and crying to the Lord, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Dear brothers and sisters, is the heart of the gospel summarized in the statement that Christ's power was shown through his strength, or can we say that an accurate summary of the gospel message was that Christ's power was shown through his weakness. And Paul says, all I want to do in my life and ministry is echo the music that is found in the gospel. It is power through weakness. It is power through weakness. And that's why in verse 9, he says that his, here's how God answered me. God answered me, no, Paul. I'm not going to take away your thorn. I'm not going to make your life better. I'm not going to answer your prayers. But here it is. Through this painful trial that I'm going to allow in your life, I am going to allow you to become so aware of how weak you really are. And the weaker you understand that you are, the more my power will be able to flow through your life. Here's a question I have for you, Cornerstone Bible Church, as you move on into the future of your future ministry. Do you and I just want to kill time, or do you and I really want to experience God's power? It's not a prideful thing to say that. It's a legitimate biblical thing to say, look, Lord, you know, I, just, I don't want to waste my time on this earth. I don't want to just spend the rest of my days just going through the motions. I don't want to just come to church and go home and come to church and go home and eat some food and go home and then just, wait, just go through the motions of the Christian life. I want my life to be count for eternity. I want your power to flow through me. I want lives to be changed. I want that person who doesn't know Christ to know Christ because your power used me to, to reach them for Christ. I, I want my life to count. I want to make a difference for the sake of Christ, not in a prideful way, just out of love for Christ. Christ. I don't want to waste my life. Do you want to just wait? Do you want to just spend your time going through the motions or do you want to experience true power? True power to be used by God to make a difference for eternity. Dear brothers and sisters, if you and I want to experience the power of God, then here's the secret. we become more and more aware of our weaknesses. And we embrace every 
painful trial, every difficult season, every disappointment, every heartache, every time life doesn't go our way as an opportunity to become more aware of our weakness. And the more we become aware of our weakness, the more God's power will be perfected in us. This is why, dear brothers and sisters, and I share my heart with you, I have hope for Cornerstone Bible Church. This is why, dear brothers and sisters, I say to you that I have hope for me my life because if there's one thing I can say in all quite honestly that over the last year I've become more aware of my weaknesses and you have become more aware of my weaknesses and your weaknesses and we say we're so weak there's no hope for us. I mean, we're so weak. How can God use us? We're so weak. How can there be a future for us? And God says, there's the paradox. The more weaker you understand yourself to be, the more my power will be perfected in you. God said to Paul, my grace will be sufficient for you. Not only my sustaining grace, Paul, my grace will, it'll get you through this trial. It'll get you through the thorn. I will sustain you. I will uphold you. But also empowering grace, life-changing grace, the grace to be used by God in fruitful ministry. It says, my grace will be sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So God gave Paul the gift of genuine humility. God gave Paul the gift of power in ministry. And then thirdly, finally, what God gave Paul in verse 10 was the gift of a heart of contentment. A heart of contentment. Verse 9, God says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then here's Paul's response. I just think this is so important. He says, Therefore, and you notice the change that Paul's going from here from his attitude in verse 8 his attitude in verse 9. In verse 8, he's pleading with the Lord to change his life. He's pleading with the Lord to change his circumstances. He's asking the Lord to take away his trial. In verse 9, there's a different attitude. And he says, Lord, therefore, if you never take away my trial, here will be my attitude. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may literally rest upon me, dwell upon me like the Shekinah glory came down and rested upon the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The power of Christ will come and dwell with me, make its abode with me as I boast in how weak I really am. And then here's his attitude, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. With what, Paul? With weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the same man who in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, stood in a prison and said, I am content. I am content. But in Philippians chapter 4, he used a Greek word which talks about having enough, being sufficient. He says, I have enough. 
Even if God never lets me out of jail, I'm sufficient. I have enough. But in verse 10, I want you to see here that Paul uses a different Greek word to describe contentment. And he not only says here, I have enough. He says here in verse 10, I am well pleased. Contentment. Lord, nothing in my life needs to change because your grace is sufficient for me. In verse 8, Paul was so intent that God changed his circumstances. And in verse 10, we see that God was intent on changing Paul's heart. I think the same could be said of you and me, isn't it? We are so intent on changing our circumstances. We are so intent on changing our lives. I'll confess to you, my prayers in the last three months have been mostly focused. Change the circumstances, Lord. Change the trials. Make it different. And what God is teaching me in the last three months is, Dan, this isn't about me changing your circumstances. This is about me changing your heart. And if you and I can stand before the Word of God and stand before Christ and say, Lord, if you never take the thorn away, I will be content. I will be content. And dear brothers and sisters, that is the greater blessing than if God had answered each and every one of our prayers. Are the thorns hard? You bet they are. Are the thorns painful and difficult for us to deal with? You bet they are. And sometimes they don't go away. But if we realize that when we pray to God and God sovereignly chooses to withhold answer from our prayers, it is only because he wants to give us something better. And if we receive from the Lord what he wants to give us, which is increased humility, true power in ministry, and a heart that is content no matter what the circumstance, we will be blessed. We will be blessed. And so I leave you with this. This is a thought the Lord gave me. Again, I'm not a prophet. It's just, just something I thought about. But if I were to summarize my walk as a Christian over the last three months, and I'll just talk about the last three months. It is that I was coming to the Lord with grasping onto things that I wanted Him to do in my life. Just holding onto them tightly. Lord, you got to do this. You got to do this. Lord, I want you to do this. I want you to change whatever it is that I wanted. And I realized at the end of that experience that my hands were so grasped so tightly to what I wanted God to do in my life that they were not open for me to receive the blessings that God wanted to pour into me. Dear brothers and sisters, open your hands. Open your hands and receive the blessings that God has for you and you will find that his grace is sufficient for you. Let's bow in prayer and let's close our time together. Well, Father, we...
praise you. We thank you for your word and for the power in which it speaks into our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your all-sufficient grace. And we thank you, Lord, that your grace toward us does not leave us in time of trial, does not leave us in time of suffering. It does not even leave us when there's times when we feel that you are not answering our prayers, but we thank you for the paradox that is found in this text, that it is in those times your grace is shown to be even more sufficient for us than if we lived a pain-free life. Father, I know that every saint here is in a different place. Lord, there are some believers here who they've healed and they're ready to move forward. And I praise you for the work that you've done in their lives. And I know, Lord, there are other believers here who are still in the process of healing. And I pray that, Lord, you would bring in your time healing that would not only restore complete joy, faith in you, strength to move forward, the healing that would even bring greater strength, greater usefulness in ministry, greater fruitfulness than ever before. Thank you for Cornerstone Bible Church. Thank you for this precious flock. Thank you for all that you have done in our lives. Father, I pray for every single member of this church for the grace to move forward. Forward in your plan. Forward in worship. Forward in prayer. Forward in evangelism. Forward into your purposes for their lives. Thank you. And we praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.